Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Mark Jackard, head of the School of Resource and Environmental Management at Simon Fraser University, and author of the 2020 book, The Citizen's Guide to Climate Success, Overcoming Myths That Hinder Progress. So welcome to the interview, Mark. Thanks for having me. Now, with that introduction, what I neglected to mention is you and I are going to be talking about Dr. Vaclav Smeal, the uh, reigning uh, Dean of Energy Transition Studies, uh, Bill Gates' favorite author. Thought I'd throw that in because he's becoming more and more controversial. And one of the reasons why is he insists on writing these dreadful op-eds in which he kind of poo-poos uh, speeding up the energy transition and, and uh, efforts to get to net zero by 2050. Uh, and he kind of looks down his nose at people who are advocating that and offers you know, no guidance from his vast store of uh, information that he's gathered over the decades uh, to, in a constructive fashion. And he's, uh, he's annoyed a lot of people in my circles, uh, even though you know, he's, it's acknowledged that his uh, scholarship is, uh, is first rate. And I wanted to talk to you because in your book, uh, you have a couple of, uh, you know, you kind of take issue with some of Dr. Schmiel's observations or his approach. So let me throw it open to you. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll get your general take on uh, Schmiel, and then I want to read a, a paragraph from his latest op-ed. So over to you. Thanks. Um, I'll just say that I, I think your description right there was, was fairly accurate. He, he is someone who is uh, incredibly knowledgeable about the energy system, and he's written a lot of works. And um, when I've written a book 20 years ago, uh, 15 years ago, and then even this most recent book, I, um, and with my graduate students, I always make them pay attention to what he's written about the technical realities of our energy system, how much we're dependent on fossil fuels, how difficult it will be to stop burning fossil fuels while still providing things <clears throat> that people say we can have. And he does a good job of you know, pinpricking or exploding uh, people's um, sort of pie in the sky uh, things that they offer. So I, I want to say that, and in that sense, I've, I've, I've bought and read many of his books, had my students read them, I use them as a useful resource, and so I do rank him quite highly in that regard, but then the challenge is what he does with that information in terms of trying to help transformation, and that's what you just started to, to talk about, having some issue with that. Well, let me uh, read this paragraph. Uh, who is going willingly to engineer decarbonization while we are still lacking any convincing, practical, affordable global strategy 
and technical means to pursue the latter. What will actually happen? The gap between wishful thinking and reality is vast, but in a democratic society, no contest of ideas and proposals can proceed in rational ways without all sides sharing at least a modicum of relevant information about the real world, rather than trotting out their biases and advancing claims disconnected from physical possibilities. Well, my goodness, uh, what do we uh, what do we make of that uh, backhanded smack at? Uh, well, I could name a few people like um, uh, I think uh, oh. Uh, Kingsmill Bond, a late of Carbon Ooh. Tracker, would be one that he would would take a would be quite annoyed with. But it seems to me, Mark, that he has willf he's willfully blind in this paragraph to much of the technical progress that, in fact, we have made on things like electrification of transportation, the transition to to clean sources of electricity. What's your take? <clears throat> yeah, so actually that paragraph though that you just quoted, I, I don't take issue of any part of that paragraph. So, um, and in fact, the, you, thank you for referencing my latest book, The Citizen's Guide to Climate Success. Um, and the, the subtitle is Overcoming Myths That Hinder Progress. And the myths, I'm, you might say, oh, Mark Jackard's going after those myths of people still in regions or in industries where they're trying to deny climate science or and so on but actually a lot of my book takes issue with people who are saying oh we're, we can all change our behavior we can we can use half as much energy globally by 2050 um, and and in fact I appreciate that Smeal is is taking issue with those those people so um, one of the examples he uses in the op-ed, I thank you for passing it, I read it, um, wind, water, and solar is this vision of the future where there's no nuclear, there's no more use of any fossil fuels, even by 2050, and um, <clears throat> or even with carbon capture and storage, uh, you know, no large hydro, or, and, and, and that, that is very expensive, very difficult to achieve, and I don't mind that Vaclav Smeal, with his technical expertise, points that out. So I'm, I'm still on for that. I think where I would probe with you, if you want, is his, <clears throat> his in, inability or unwillingness to talk about um, the examples where we've done things, which you just mentioned, of electric vehicles, and try to say, how could that happen more <clears throat> globally? And so even in my book, uh, after talking about Smeal, I, and, and Bill Gates has the same position, by the way. So Bill Gates also writes, uh, I'm frustrated with Smeal that he won't offer things. So he's, he's not a blind follower of Vaclav Smeal at all. And, and what you would do is you'd say, oh, how did the Brazilians so quickly get vehicles over to biofuels? How did Ontario so quickly close all its coal plants? How did, and, you, and you, there, how, how did the Swedes get their whole building industry away from burning fossil fuels in a decade or just over? So there are just so many examples out there that Smeal never kind of probes and says, how'd they do that? How could we help spread, disseminate that elsewhere? He just never seems to want to do that. Well, I, I, would, have to, I would have to agree with that. and. The, uh, I, I come back to this interview uh, 
uh, again and again, is probably with an economist that you know well, uh, Werner Antweiler at uh, UBC. He's a was a podcast guest uh, a couple of months ago, and we talked about uh, Peter, uh, uh, sorry, um, Joseph uh, Schumpeter's uh, ideas of the long waves of innovation. We're in the sixth wave of innovation, or some people call it the fourth industrial revolution, and. The, the point that, uh, I, that uh, I took away, or the, the point that, that, that Werner made is that the current uh, technical advances that we've made, and we think of, you know, batteries would be a, a good example, they have such long roots. I mean, many of these you know, commercial solar panels date back to the 70s and wind commercial wood and turbines to the 80s and lithium ion battery got introduced in 1991. I mean, it's not like these, these innovations that are going to trans eventually transform the global energy system. It's not like they popped up on our radar last week. I mean, these things have been, they've been on the bottom of the S-curve for decades. And they're only now over the last you know, couple of years or five years, whatever it is, you know, become competitive with the fossil fuel-based technologies. And then we know, and Schmiel certainly knows this, that then over time, there, then there's a period of disruption where the, these new technologies begin to compete vigorously in the, in the marketplace with, with, the, uh, with their, you know, the older uh, the incumbent technologies. And then eventually the new technologies become, provide enough, you know, the lower cost and higher value. And so they begin to push these other technologies out. Then over a period of time, they become the do dominant technology. I mean, you know, you read any of Vaclav Schmiel's work, that's essentially how it works. And, and we are now in that disruptive period, in, in my opinion, anyway, I mean, we're uh, agreed. And it, so it seems like he ignores all of this, what's gone on the last 30 to 50 years, which sets the stage for what, for the kind of changes that, that others are talking about and maybe a little more optimistic, you know, tone of voice or view than they, than they should. But anyway. So, um, so that was uh, interesting, Markham. And this is a great opportunity because it sets me up to push back because now I'm going to be on Vaclav's side. So, and, and just, I picked up on a few things you said there. So I know Werner Antweiler and I, I know he really works on policy. Now, if we are in a world, as you sort of described it, which was, oh, there's these innovations out there. They've been there a long time and now they're finally getting competitive. And so, that, and then we might have this <clears throat> Schumpeterian transformation, a long wave of innovation. Well, um, Schmiel would come back and say, no, we won't. Uh, you, you need maybe if you have policy that reflects the cost of putting CO2 in the atmosphere when you burn fossil fuels. But Schmiel would say, um, Are you really paying attention to the quality of those fossil fuels and the innovation that's going on with them all the time, both in extracting, like whether we innovate enhanced oil recovery or fracking or, or whatever, or in consumption, the internal combustion engine getting better and better, natural gas turbines for electricity. So the, those, the tr when you just said some of these things are getting competitive, my answer to you is no, they aren't. No, well, they aren't. No, they aren't. No, they aren't. And Backlab Smeal and I agree. The only reason renewables, uh, wind generation are happening 
on the planet is because of policy. It's happening where governments say a percentage of this has to be renewable, so I'm sorry. Or they say you can't build another coal plant. It, that's when it's happening is with policy. It isn't that these things finally got competitive. So there's a myth out there that, that wind and solar are now competitive with the natural gas turbine, and it's absolutely not true. And so I could go through every one of these, whether it's a vehicle propulsion, trucking, um, home heating, you name it, um, fossil fuels will win. The only places they're not winning is when we put in policies that said, you have to stop destroying the planet uh, when you heat your home, when you move around in a vehicle, when you make electricity. And so um, in that sense, I'm gonna defend Vaclav if he's pointing out that this, this thing is not happening, it's bull. And, and so if, when especially look in the developing world, pretend that you're um, an electricity planner in Vietnam or Indonesia or uh, Tanzania or uh, Pakistan, like, you know, where the 5 billion people live, they are burning more and more fossil fuels unless we put in policy. So, so I, I want to push back on this idea that Smeal ignores this huge thing that's happening out there. It's not happening. And that's why I wrote my book of how we get that policy even better in industrialized countries, how it has to spread to the developing world. So this is what we economists call externality policy. It's recognizing that if you leave the atmosphere unpriced, we will still burn fossil fuels and destroy it. Well, Mark, I'm going to push back myself because you made a couple of errors there. And one of them is that the internal combustion engine is improving and improving when it's not. Essentially, the thermodynamic efficiency of an internal combustion engine is fixed the run. I mean, it's, it's locked in in the 20s, depending on what you're talking about. But there, the gas-powered engine is not going to be any more efficient than 20, 25%, 30th max. And it costs billions of dollars in technical innovations from, you know, engin in, in engineering to get it even at like a half percent higher. So uh, no, that's not true. So what's happening? You're focused. That absolutely is true. You're focused on the engine itself. I'm focusing on the efficiency of vehicles. So the cafe standards have been able to get the average efficiency to continue decreasing since the 70s, when a lot of people said that wouldn't be possible. How do they do it? It isn't just the, the, the combustion cycle. It's the vehicle design. It's the materials that go into the vehicle. It's drag. It's aerodynamic design. It's weight. It's all of these other things, and it keeps getting more efficient. And that's all I pointed out, and I was correct in doing that, and I can show you all the data from the cafe standards. Sure. And all of those things are applicable to electric vehicles. Absolutely. So anyway. Except the electric vehicle costs way more. Well, it doesn't cost way more. And in fact, the if you look at Bloomberg NEF's uh, forecast, we're talking about price parity for, for some light-duty vehicles by mid-decade and, and, uh, and premium vehicles and others by later on in the decade. All I mean, of I'm those not... studies freeze gasoline vehicles as if they won't get cheaper. They are getting, the, in India now, they're making them for $5,000. Oh my goodness, you know that. <clears throat> so anyway, I, I mean, you and I are, are headed off in a funny direction here. I just wanted to point out that there's a lot of truth in what Smeal says, and I'm, I'm unwilling to just go after Smeal. Where, where the only area where he irritates me, but it's major, is in his, his sort of always confusing um, prescription and, and, and things we can think about, not innovation in terms of just technology, but in, 
in public policy, um, in organization of society, and instead just talking about all of this as impossible, impossible, impossible. But he also says impossible in a certain time frame. So again, in fairness to Smeal, he's saying the examples in the article you just got me to read was people saying that we would have human energy, cons energy consumption by 2050. And that is like crazy impossible. And so that's an example um, where Schmiel's right. But, but what, he, what he's done essentially in these, I mean, it's one thing to write an academic article where, where you know, somebody like you, another economist with lots of experience reads that and understands the nuance. But what Schmiel has done for a while now is he's writing these op-eds where, where the general public doesn't have that kind of understanding, that expertise, and, and they basically come away with, oh, okay, we're stuck with fossil fuels. There's no way this new technology is going to displace it. And essentially, he's become the poster child for the oil and gas industry. I mean, I, I see it all the time in the in the on my social media fields. The oil boroughs, as we call them, are advancing Schmiel and, and op eds like these and going, look, 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 we're stuck. We're going to have oil is going to be dominant for for decades and decades and decades. And Schmiel said so. He's set himself up as basically the the useful idiot for for the incumbent industries. And I I I'm getting a little heated here, so maybe I shouldn't. I don't mean to be that critical of him, but I'm annoyed because of his role in, in, in defending the incumbent narrative, which then impedes policy, uh, new policies and impedes changes in public support for the, the policies that are required and the new technologies that are coming. And I think that's a legitimate criticism of Schmidt. And, and now, uh, Markham, you're back into a realm where you and I are in total agreement, <laughs> which is no fun for the listeners. It's much better if we can disagree. Um, but yes, and, and that is my critique of Smeal. And you may have noticed that if you saw me, me, my reference to it in my latest book, that's um, I agree completely with your point. I mean, I haven't, uh, maybe I'm not interacting as much with the oil industry, so I, I'm not actually familiar with the examples you give, but it would not surprise me. It would not surprise me because he does often present this as just here are all the impossibilities and he just seems uninterested in the cases where we accelerated. And so, um, and so therefore you do end up becoming an age, a convenient uh, foil or, or you know, a, con a convenient support for a position which is um, these people are all delusional crazies who are trying to get CO2 emissions to fall rapidly. Whereas you know that you and I both support the science that tells us that humanity needs to get those emissions down rapidly. In some cases, even where that will cost us economic growth. And, but he is pointing out that where people talk about it in such, you know, he's going after some of the more what that a lot of the mainstream academics don't agree with. They don't agree with uh, the people that I work with don't agree with Mark, Mark Jacobson. Um, that, that it's uh, just as in the past, Amory Lovins, you know, we can do all of this with renewables and get there in just two decades. So, so in that sense, um, <clears throat> good for Smeal, but, I, but it really is irritating and therefore suspicious that he can never seem to challenge himself intellectually to, to say, okay, how do I make fast change? What are the things I should help people with in how fast change or faster change or less slow change could happen? And it's really disappointing that he doesn't do that because he actually, in, in that sense, can become a, a convenient agent for the people who are slowing us down and therefore causing great harm to us and future generations. 
Right. And one of the ways, I mean, essentially what he does is he supports the straw man. Because I don't know, I mean, even you look at Zipporah Berman, for instance, who is a, a well-known Canadian climate activist and, and is often pointed to as someone who is, you know, demanding almost the instant uh, end of the use of fossil fuels. Uh, she's called for all sorts of bans and, and phase downs and phase outs of, of the oil sands, for instance. But what you, if, if you pay attention to what she says and others like her, like Abby, Abby Lewis and, and so on, what they're really saying is phase out by over a long period of time. Nobody that I know of, no serious person thinks that we're going to, you know, do a snap our fingers and flick a switch and stop using fossil fuels. That's not going to not going to happen. And that's the straw man that that Schmiel often advances that people people are saying. You know, somebody's advocating for this when they're really not advocating for that. And I think we need to get rid of that straw man, be done with it. Don't don't include it anymore in our in our uh, in our discussions. And this really is should be a conversation about we are getting to a cleaner future. How do we get there faster? So my my analogy often is, look, you know, the energy transition is a bus and how fast do you want to go? Well, if you want to go faster, push the policy accelerator faster. So we need to have a discussion about the discussion really should be about we're already headed there. Technology is changing. And, you know, you and I can disagree about whether it's there or whether it's not there. But it is it's heading in that direction. And how fast do we need to do it? Yeah. Now, but I do want to clarify one thing. Zipporah Berman, um, who's a friend of mine and I have time for, um, it doesn't mean we won't disagree. You mentioned that Smeal is saying she would argue that we have to rapidly reduce our, and you, the words you used was use of fossil fuels. <clears throat> I happen to agree with that. I think we need to rapidly decrease our use of fossil fuels. But Zipporah is identified with a position that says, therefore, you should even phase out the production side of fossil fuels. Right. She's focused on the production side. And that's where um, her and I may differ, and it's a strategic one. I, I, I'm just simply saying to her, okay, you're trying to, like, I can think of some reasons, and I think I've explained it to you on this show, for why a federal government at that time, when um, in 2016, was willing to say, we're going to help complete this expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And in fact, we're going to do that because we think it will enable us to more rapidly put in a zero emission vehicle mandate, put in a clean electricity standard, policies that they've been, a clean fuel standard, policies that they have been implementing. Now, so Zipporah and I can argue with each other about whether Trudeau made the right strategic like if, if she were prime minister and trying to get reelected and get support across the country and not have Alberta trying to separate, she might have one idea. No, we can start just closing down those uh, oil sands and so on. And I don't know what she would say there, I, but you know, she's much more on that production side. Whereas Trudeau and, and me to some extent would say, okay, you got to understand people go crazy in Alberta or anywhere else, if you think you're annihil if they think you're annihilating their economy, yet at the same time, we could rapidly reduce our use of fossil fuels, whether it's in electricity generation, transportation or buildings. This is what the Norwegians are doing. They're still producing oil. They're focused on, re on reducing the use of fossil fuels and hoping to be part of a movement to make that happen globally, working with the Chinese on electric vehicles and so on. So, so I make that distinction when you were talking about um, the, the, the 
Abby Lewis and the idea of shutting down all of this, this, these facilities, that's a strategic question among people who are trying to move fast. And so I, I kind of set Smeal away from that. Um, he's just simply somebody, as I said earlier, who just doesn't, just tells you why we can't go as fast as you'd like to go, doesn't really enter the policy domain, which is really what you need. It's policies to deal with the fact that burning fossil fuels is, has given humans enormous benefits. We cannot deny that, and it still can. Um, and so you're going to need what economists call externality policy and where we're reducing emissions rapidly in the world. That's what we did. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm not sure where to go uh, from here with this conversation, Mark, because on the one hand, I, I think I, I, I kind of agree with you, but where we, where I, I would still argue that, well, that, I, that I don't agree with you is on the amount of innovation that's taking place in technologies that are, that are directly energy related. So, you know, renewables and batteries and electric vehicles and heat pumps and, and all of that. And, and I, so what would be the purpose of, pol of policy? Well, to bring down the cost of those technologies so that, so that people can adopt them. And so, for instance, in British Columbia, where you, you and I live, we just replaced our ga natural gas furnace with a, with a heat pump and uh, received generous subsidies from both the federal government and the provincial government to do that. And you are absolutely correct. If, if uh, the cost of a natural gas plus air conditioning would be around $10,000 for our home, and the cost of a heat pump, which would do the same thing, was around uh, oh, 16000 or 14000 something like that. So had we, had we not had the subsidies, you're right. We, would, we might very well have, have chosen the natural gas uh, fireplace. But it's also true that the heat pumps today are far more efficient and, and coming down in cost uh, and will be not competitive today on a cost basis or a cost plus value basis. But boy, they're getting close. And I think that can be said for a lot of energy technologies so that what is true today will not be true in 2020, uh, 2030 or 2035 or 2040. So things are changing. The technology is becoming more competitive. And my previous point about you know, being competitive and then displacing fossil fuel technology, I think it still holds. Yeah, so thanks for an example that proved my point. <laughs> I knew you were gonna say that. Okay, well, yeah. explain how it proved your point. Well, because I just finished last week, two days of all day meetings um, on climate policy in BC. And then at the same time, something federal that went for a whole day. And in it, I was examining the heat pump costs for existing and future uh, and new buildings. Okay, new buildings, they're a little closer. And again, always for, well, you have to be, it depends where, like, where is it for air conditioning and heating? Where is it just for heating because it's a moderate climate? although getting warmer, and where is it in really cold climates where a lot of Canadians live? And so what's, what is ground source heat pump? What is air source heat pump? So trying to get to the, and always picking the cheapest option for where it was. And you're saying to me, oh, those heat pumps are getting cheaper, so one day they'll win. Nope, not in our lifetime, and not in the lifetime of our kids. The, 
The, the only reason the heat pump's getting more competitive is because we're putting in a, a price on natural gas. So we're, we're actually putting in a, a, an externality charge, the very policy I was just talking about. We're also putting in government subsidies and, um, and, and we're also putting in uh, regulations. And if you strip those away and simulate, and that's what I do, energy economy models, even with an aggressive rate of innovation, and remember, there are upper limits to heat pumps as well, right? So we're around a 300 coefficient of performance. Maybe we can get to 400 one day. Um, but there are a lot of issues with the whole system with a heat pump in terms of peakiness. So there's costs up and down the line in your electricity system. So when I run, when we run the models with innovation in heat pumps, and of course, a modest amount of innovation in the natural gas system and have no carbon price rising and have no subsidies, it's, it's 2050 before your heat pump might be competitive. So, that, and that's my point, Markham. That was, and that's my point for electricity generation with wind and solar and being reliable. It's, my, it's for vehicles, uh, especially heavy freight. Um, that's basically what happens without including policies that address pollution, which whether they're subsidies to equipment, subsidies to the operating costs, charges on the operating cost of the burning fossil fuels uh, or bans on technology, that's where we've gotten towards zero emission. Okay, so if I were to sum up our, 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 our arguments, uh, you would argue that none of these new technologies are competitive or ever will be competitive in the near future uh, without policy. Universally, I, I, I need to correct you. Universally, I can always, I could find you a place where uh, a solar panel made sense on the moon shuttle and it was better, you know, in, in 1968. So there are always, or a highway lighting system, the solar panel. So be careful. It's, it's for wholesale market dominance in the developing world, especially. Okay, fair, fair enough. And, and, and I would argue that, that the technology, technologies, and, and maybe not all of them, maybe heat pump was a bad example, uh, but I would argue that there are others, you know, like batteries and, and electric vehicles that are, so there, there's where we differ. And I, and I do have to say, I'm a journalist, you're a, an economic modeler. So I think you have a leg up on, on this one. So maybe we'll leave that for another day. We can, we can thrash that out in a, in a future episode, but let's bring it back to, to Schmiel. So I think we're agreed that he does some useful things in terms of uh, bringing reality into the conversation around the energy transition. And, and, I, and I'd certainly concede that, but he fails because he never offers any, he doesn't draw on his expertise and his well of, wealth of experience to say, but you know what? Here's how we could do things faster. Here's how we could do things better and more efficiently. Is that a, a fair way to sum up? It is. And just to say to people that my book, Sustainable Fossil Fuels, is free online with Cambridge University Press, and you can pull off individual chapters. And here's why I tell you that. Because in the chapter on renewables, where I critique Smeal, I also critique you. I say Smeal, by his arguments, actually gets people to do what you said earlier in this interview. They, they kind of throw up their hands and say, well, there's nothing we can do. Da, da, da. we're going to use, use fossil fuels a little, let's just forget about climate and just we're going to keep developing fossil fuels. We understand we need a transition. We hope it happens. Could be a long time. 
But I also argue, and that's the key thrust of the renewables chapter, is how many times I've been in meetings in 25 years with cabinet ministers and with advocates of renewables and technologies and, and environmentalists who said, innovation is getting us there. And so what does the cabinet minister do? They say, oh, you mean the heat pump is going to get cheaper? You mean the electric vehicles cheaper? You're telling me solar and wind are already cheaper? Good. I don't have to put policy in. I don't have to charge people more for burning natural gas or coal or oil. I don't have to give subsidies. I don't have to regulate. And so uh, my chapter on renewables is primarily an attack, not on Smeal, who I see as a small fry. It's on the people who really prevent us getting climate sincere politicians to act. And so it's my citizen's guide saying, citizens and advocates, stop telling us this stuff is going to win. That's not where it, it may be in some, in fact, they always give like one example, you know, wind here. Um, and sure, that's probably true. What we're talking about is a wholesale transformation, as Shmiel said, of the global energies of a growing global energy system that will be two or three times larger just if, if it's slow growth in the developing world. So when we say that there's this innovation and the stuff's getting cheaper, we actually prevent policy. And that was my big message. And I'm happy that you've given me an opportunity to not only critique Smeal, but to make that message. Well, look, Mark, I really appreciate that. I mean, you know, I do, I have a tremendous amount of respect for the, the economic modeling you do and, the, and the, the voice that you bring to this conversation, even though I'm still not entirely convinced. But I will give you, in, in uh, maybe, uh, maybe this fall, uh, we can have another episode where we talk about those very things. And we can go into it in a little more depth and make the argument. Because if your argument is, is uh, uh, if I can be convinced as I'm sure others can. And so I, I, I think that that is an important conversation that needs to be had. And let's see where it goes. Absolutely. And I will say, I mean, I've been happy. And in the book, I talk a lot about how I changed my mind with evidence over the decades. Uh, I thought energy efficiency was really cheap. And then I heard some leading scholars showing it wasn't. So I did my own research. I thought renewables would outcompete nuclear and fossil fuels. And then I ended up following researchers. And so that's why I don't ignore someone like Vaclav Smeal. I look at his research and I compare it to the leading people I know at MIT, um, you know, at the US Department of Energy, because they're really good, Lawrence Berkeley Lab. And, and so, and then I, we model it. And I'm part of the Stanford University's Energy Modeling Forum. And we just try to be really critical and change our minds with new evidence. So I'd be happy to explore that further with you. Well, we'll look forward to that. And thank you very much for this conversation. My pleasure as always.